0: Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Very good. How's everyone doing? We are all right? Who's been enjoying our, uh, our March cold snap? Yeah, no one, right? But uh, you've got it anyway, so embrace it. Look for the silver lining, uh, is, is what I say. Hey, it's a, real, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to to be with you this morning. Uh, we are in a series. Who knows what series we're in? Prayer. Prayer. That's right. We're in a series called A House of Prayer. Who's been enjoying it? Yeah. It's good. It's good. If you said no, I didn't have a response to that. I would have just felt sad. Uh, but we've been in a series for the last, this is our fourth week now. Uh, looking at what does it mean, what does it look like to, to be a people of prayer? Really, what does it look like to intentionally affirm and, and put value on prayer, right? We're not saying that we've never been a house of prayer before, and we're not saying once the series finishes that we'll stop being a house of prayer, but we're intentionally valuing uh, this w- within who we are, because we really feel like God's doing something special in this. Uh, and so today, I kinda, we, we, Easter is, is handy. We're kind of splitting uh, the, the series into two parts. There's before Easter and after Easter. That's kind of how our faith works too, but uh, it's just handy, right? Uh, and so for the last four weeks, we kind of started with this, this question, what does it look like to, to be a house of prayer? We, we, like to, we like to be at the forefront here at Equipers. So we started with Palm Sunday, like four uh, Sundays early, just to get a, a head start on the, the calendar, right? For those of you in the know, today is Palm Sunday. That's why that joke is funny. Except it's not really, right? But we started with Palm Sundays, which is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, his uh, triumphal entry. We asked, how in in coming into Jerusalem did Jesus restore prayer? And, And what does it look like for us as a people who follow Jesus to be a people centered around prayer? are people who gather for, for worship and prayer, but then who scatter, continuing to pray and recognizing the face of Jesus and the faces of our, our neighbors and our coworkers, our friends and strangers. Week two, we talked about building some intentional rhythms, that prayer is about relationship and that any relationship in our life is found in intentional commitment, that that's the soil in which relationships grow, including prayer, that it takes fidelity, that it takes commitment, that it takes showing up, that fidelity is boring, but that the fruits of fidelity are beautiful, right? That we can pray like, like jazz, that sometimes prayer can be spontaneous, but, but that also it looks like embracing the sheet music, like borrowing a prayer about finding a balance. Then last week, Pastor Penny spoke about the Lord's Prayer. What does it look like to approach God as a father? And that there are five uh, implications of that, that we approach God with adoration, with surrender, with petition, with intercession, and, and looking for protection. And so kind of on the back of, of those three weeks, don't worry if you don't have all of that smushed into your brain. We've got most of it uh, up online. But, but really, on the back of all of that, today I want to look at what does it look like? What does it feel like? What, how do we express praying for our friends and family who don't know God? Right, if, if all we are is just a, a group of people for our own benefit, we miss the, the bulk of what Jesus called us to do, right? That Jesus didn't say, hey, I've come to, to, to help the, the people who, who don't really need help. Jesus said, the sick need a doctor, right? That I haven't just come to, to meet the people who, who have encountered Jesus, but that Jesus comes for those who don't know him. And that we get to be His hands and His feet. And, and as the Lord's Prayer says, outworking something of God's kingdom coming to pass here on earth as it is in heaven. What does it look like to embrace the prayer, to really embrace the prayer? God, would your kingdom come in Aotearoa? Would your kingdom come in Christchurch as in heaven? Not just as a nice kind of thing to say, but, but as a deep, heartfelt reality. Is that all right? Good. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. i We're going to read that, uh, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, verses 41 to 45. It's, it's a familiar passage of Scripture to many of us. It says this, And Elijah said to Ahab, Ahab is the king of, of uh, the nation at the time, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, and bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, his servant said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds the wind rose and a heavy rain started falling as Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Will you bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, we thank you that you are here with us. God, that as we gather, that, that you present yourself in our, in our midst, God, as we create an intentional pursuit of you that, that you are not hard to find. God, I pray for us as we come together today in, in all that we come in with, in the highs and in the lows, in the, in the excitement and in the disappointment. God, thank you that you meet us there. God, I pray today as we look at your word, as, as we explore this, this idea of what does it look like to pray for those who don't yet know your love, your peace and your hope. How does that land in us? That it wouldn't be my ideas, that it wouldn't be my words. God, if it's of me, let it fall to the ground. But where it is of you, would it land in our hearts? Would it encourage us? Would it draw us forward into what you have for us, God? We pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I wanna start by introducing you to a friend of mine. He's, he's a friend of mine uh, insofar as I like him and he never met me, which is some of the best friendships I find, right? Like uh, they say never meet your heroes or just have dead heroes because they can't disappoint you. Uh, I don't know how much of, of that is wisdom, but in this case it works. Uh, this is a man named D.L. Moody. Uh, we're great friends partially because I am very envious of his facial hair. Uh, I just think that that's a, that's a beard and a half, right? Like that's, uh, if you're living at the time that he lived, it was also like a health and safety precaution. They didn't have uh, masks and that type of thing. So he just filtered the air that he breathed through his facial hair, which is, uh, that's innovation, if you're asking me. D.L. Moody, uh, for those of you who don't know him, was born one of nine children to a single mother who really struggled to keep food on the table. He didn't have any education beyond the fifth grade level and he went on to make his living as a shoe salesman. Uh, Moody's life changed, however, at the age of 17 when he came to a, a knowing faith in Jesus. And, and as one thing led to another, as his passion and his availability combined, he went on to start traveling the world preaching the gospel. In fact, not just preaching the gospel, DL Moody went on to preach the gospel, drawing crowds as large as 30,000 people to hear him preach. Many consider him to be the greatest evangelist of the 21st of the 19th century, sorry. And there are lots of things when we look at the, the life of a man like Moody that, that we could look at, that we could talk about, but unsurprisingly in this series on prayer, the thing that I really want to focus in on today is, come on, that was like an open goal, guys. Oh, was it, it, was, it was his facial here, right? You just said, no, no, it was his second. That was a great thing as well. It was his life of, of prayer. Right It was D.L. Moody's commitment to, to prayer. To let Moody say it for himself, if we put the quote up on the screen, Moody says this, "Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure." Tyler Staden in his book, uh, "Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools," tells the story of, of D.L. Moody carrying a list of a hundred names. A 100 of his friends who, who didn't yet know Jesus. And, and the story goes that Moody would every day pray through this list. And when a friend came to faith, he'd simply cross their name off the list. Incredibly, when, when Moody died, 96 of those 100 names had come into a relationship with Jesus. Which, I mean, if we're talking about batting averages, like, I would be very chuffed with 96% of the things that I prayed for coming to pass, right? Like that's, uh, I'm, I'm, and you know, sometimes I'm not using my prayers, if I'm being honest, on, on such amazing things as praying for my friends. Sometimes it's just like, God, can you find me a car park? Uh, and there's nothing wrong with prayers like that. But even those prayers for me, I don't have a high success rate, right? Like I'm praying earnestly in the car park for a car park, especially school drop off. I've got like a thing where, you know, it's, it's a whole new dynamic for us, and I'm praying for a car park, and because Ollie's only little, and so I'm like, God, all the other kids are bigger, and so they can walk further and get wetter, but Ollie's just little, and I know you love him more than everyone else, so can we have a car park closer to school, please? And sometimes it just, God's like, yeah, maybe if you left on time to actually find a car park, but I'm not gonna reward your lack of preparation, Jono. It's a, it's a lesson. We're going through some stuff, right? But, but Moody, 96 of the 100 people on his list came to faith in Jesus by the time he died. But, but it gets even more amazing than that because at his funeral, at his memorial service, the gospel was shared. And, and of those four friends who had yet to make a commitment, all were in attendance and all were independently so moved by the gospel, so moved by the account of the life that Moody lived, that every single one of those four friends left on the list made a decision at his funeral to put their faith in Jesus. Right? When I hear a story like that in Moody, it, it, it moves me. Right? It, it, it lights something of a fire in me to say, hey, what would it look like? What, what if God is wanting to do something great in my life? What if God is wanting to do something great in, in our lives? What if God is wanting to do something incredible in Christchurch to bring restoration and transformation, to pour out His, His love and His power in a new way, and He's looking for a people who pray. So if you're anything like me, maybe you, you hear a story like the story of, of Moody's list of 100 and you get inspired. Maybe you even, you go and you, you write your own list. Maybe not, it's not 100, maybe it's five, maybe it's one, but you, you write a list and you start to carry it around with you, a list in your pocket, and, and you pray for it and you take it out and, and then one day you, you need to wash your pants. And I want to be clear, I'm not anti-washing pants, right? Like we are a pro-washing pants church. That's a part of loving your neighbor is washing your clothes. Just a very practical way. Some of you, that's equipping you for life in faith in Jesus Christ and understanding uh, general cleanliness. Uh, but, But one day you've got this list in your pocket and you wash your pants. And maybe if you're anything like me, you forget to take the list out of your pants before you wash them. There's nothing quite worse, right, than taking like just that load of washing and it's covered in little bits of paper like it just irks me at a deep soul level like I just the brokenness of the world and my humanity collides in a moment I'm like god come back soon if only to fix this problem. <laughs> and you could rewrite the list. But you just don 't quite get around to it, and, and you mean to, but you don't quite yet and and, and and then you kind of blink and someone shares a story like this, and you're like, oh, you know, like a couple of months, six months, a year, a few years ago i had I had an intention like that, I was doing something like that, but but it's it's been forgotten, or you you pray and you pray, you hear me share this and, and, and uh, uh, someone comes to mind that you've been praying for night and day, that you've been seeking God for for a long time. You think, John, I haven't lost the list. I've been better prepared than you are. I've been praying, I've been asking God, but but I've been asking God for a long time and what I, I ache in my heart, what I feel like God is wanting to do, I haven't seen it happen yet. What do I do with this disconnect between God, you are more than able and God, I haven't seen you do what I feel like I know that you want to do. And yet we read things like in James chapter 5 that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so then we do this like weird stop take, don't we? Like, well, if the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, I guess that means I'm not a righteous person. So I need to behave my way into getting God to answer my prayers. I need to convince him to do what I would like. And there's a tension here, isn't there? What do we do? What do we do when we want to see the transforming power of, of prayer? We want to see revival like Moody, but we struggle to pray. Well, James, he seems to understand the tension that we live in. He continues, Elijah was a human being. Even as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. See, James encourages us that prayer can be powerful and effective. Just look at Elijah. He was just a man, but God used his prayers. And today, I want to encourage us, prayer can be powerful and effective. Just look at at someone like Elijah or someone closer to our time like Moody, who was also just a man, and yet God used his prayers. See, the the place I want to start from today is, is from the established assumption that there is a type of prayer that changes nations. There is a type of prayer that brings about restoration and transformation. There is a type of prayer that brings about new life, that brings about revival. There's a type of prayer that James encourages us to pray that says we can pray too. And yet we don't see the things that we ache to see. Am I alone in that? Like, no, no, I'm getting getting all the car parks I'm praying for and the big things, right? Like I'm praying for healing. It's happening. Anyone's got like every prayer they ever prayed getting answered? Quick, no, cool, no saints in the room. I mean, you're all saints in Christ, but you get what I'm saying, right? What do we do? What do we do when we know that prayer is powerful and effective? We know that we are invited to prayer and yet the things that we pray for, so often we don't see happen in the way that we would answer the prayer if we were God. Yeah. To, to answer that question, let's look at the story of Elijah in First Kings uh, 18 to 41 to 45. For, for context here, Israel has forgotten about God. Now, not to bag on Israel, but they they do tend to to do that. It's a bit of a pattern in the Old Testament that that Israel looks to Yahweh, they look to their God out of desperation in a moment of need, and he responds. But that when their prayers are answered, their desperation gets replaced by comfort, and they forget God, and, and they forget the God that led them out of that desperation in the first place, and they trust in something or someone else instead, something that they can control. And in Elijah's time, Israel's trust is placed in their king Ahab and his wife Jezebel rather than Yahweh. And Ahab and Jezebel, they've led Israel away from God into idol worship of a false god named Baal. And in this moment of extraordinary courage, Elijah confronts this idol worship and he approaches King Ahab and he issues a challenge. He says, I'm one prophet of Yahweh, and there are 450 prophets of Baal. So let's set up a sacrifice with two altars, one to God, one to Yahweh, and and one to Baal. And let's put a bull on each altar as a sacrifice to our gods. But let's not set fire to the sacrifice. And instead, let's let's have like a sacrifice off. It's like the Old Testament equivalent of a dance off, except a little bit more kind of gory, depending on what type of dancing you're into. Right, this the sacrifice of let's pray that, that whoever's God is real, whoever's God is the one true God would send fire to the sacrifice miraculously. Now, historically, this wasn't quite as, as kind of random as it sounds, right? Like, it feels like Elijah's like, I don't know, let's just, let's do this, right? This will be a, a fun way to figure this out. See, in, in ancient Mesopotamia, Baal was considered the god of the skies, and he was often portrayed as a bull with a lightning bolt in his hands. We'll put up a, a picture of how, uh, this isn't my picture, so, so don't judge it. This is how Baal uh, used to be portrayed. You're like, Johnny, that brings no more clarity. I know, I just wanted to show you it, right? Like, don't judge them. They didn't have crayons and pencils. They had to carve their pitches into stone so I feel like you know with the tools they're given uh they're doing a pretty good job but I don't know if you can see there Baal has kind of the the what are they called I was gonna call them antlers no they're horns bulls have horns guys uh the the horns of a bull there and then that weird branch that's in his lower hand not his third arm which we all obviously have uh but his second arm that's meant to be a lightning bolt just in case you were wondering right And so here, this is what Baal looks like. He's the God who's betrayed as a bull who holds lightning. This is Baal. And so Elijah, in this this competition, he's, he's doing everything he can to give Baal's prophets the home court advantage. He's like, your God is the God of bulls? Cool, the thing that we will put on the altar to be lit on fire can be a bull, right? If he's, if he's friendly with bulls, let's do that. And, and how is he gonna light it on fire? Your God's the God of lightning from the skies. Okay, cool, well then we'll get lightning to come from the sky to light the bull, you know, your God's favorite thing on fire. Like if your God can do anything, surely he can do this. And and Ahab is intrigued, and he says, sure, yeah, let's go for it. And so the sacrifices are all set up, word spreads, a a massive crowd gathers, and the 450 prophets of Baal go first, they start praying, nothing happens. And so they start kind of whipping themselves into a bit of a frenzy, they start dancing around, it gets more and more intense as it goes from morning till, till midday, they shout and dance around the altar, and still nothing happens. They continue into the evening, even cutting themselves, mutilating their own bodies to try and get their God's attention, and nothing happens and so now it's Elijah's turn. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 30, it says this: Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. John, do you know, what does this have to do with prayer? Well, you see here, before praying, Elijah walked over to the old altar of Yahweh the one that was torn down in the name of of worshiping Baal and he rebuilds the very foundation where Israel used to worship. What does this foundation go back to? The tent of David. He reestablishes the principle, the idea, the foundation of prayer and worship to God, to Yahweh. We are making space for God. He says, hey, when we put prayer in the church, life starts to break out everywhere else. He prioritizes prayer. Then he says to them, fill four large jugs with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Now, now on the service, this seems impressive because wet wood is obviously more difficult to burn, right? Like anyone started to, to light some fires as the weather gets cold and some of your firewood got wet and you put it into your fireplace and it's just, it's, it's not a great time, right? You get that frustration of like, why when it was raining did I not shift this? Just me again, it's a very therapeutic preaching experience for me, guys, so I appreciate that. Parking experiences, firewood, we'll get through some stuff, right? Wet wood is harder to burn, is what I'm saying. But, but it actually goes more than this, because it's not just simply that if you're about to pray for something to catch on fire, drenching it first is a bold move. That's not the point of what he's doing, right? Elijah is not Houdini setting up a magic trick. Elijah is a worshiper preparing to pray. See, a reminder of the context here, Israel is in the middle of a three-year drought. It hasn't rained for a thousand days. The country is in the middle of a disaster. They're unable to grow crops. People are starving. They need rain. So what is the most valuable thing in a drought? water, right? You guys are smart. You switched on this morning. They need water. So in a drought, you'd conserve water. You'd limit bathing. You'd drink as little as you could. You'd, you'd focus on saving water for the crops. So when Elijah pours not just some water, but so much water that it fills the trenches around the altar, what is he doing? I would suggest that he's sacrificing his most valuable asset that he has. He's bringing his worship. He's going all in. The the words of David echo over this. I will not bring to my God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. He's saying, God, either this works or I am toast. Like, God, I'm not just praying a pretty prayer. God, I am going all in on my worship. And then finally, after not just preparing this moment, but giving everything that he can give in this moment, he prays. We read in in verse 37, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all of the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So to recap our story, right, Elijah rebuilds the altar this place of prayer and worship in the center of the nation. He pours out his most precious resource on it and God shows up. There is fire in the church. This is what we dream of. This is what we pray for. This is what a number of our songs are about. God, would you come and show God, would your fire fall and move in in spectacular and amazing ways? And so often when we read this story, if we're honest, what we do is we close our Bible there and we go, that was great. Which fair enough. Right? Like, I'm not saying that this is unimpressive. This is an incredible story. But, but what I want to point out is that that is not the end of the story. In fact, what I would suggest in the life of Elijah is that that is the very beginning. I, I would put it this way. If this was a movie, that is not the ending. That's act one. To, to, to put it like this, if this is act one, it's act one. I'm pointing because it's going to appear there. Act one, fire in the church. Often when it comes to prayer, we want fire. We want God to move in power. We want to see the supernatural, and that's great. Let's see that, but let's understand that that's a start. Again, to quote Tyler Staten, he puts it this way, God does not dream of the church on fire. God dreams of the city reborn. Now, now that only makes sense if we know the ending of the story, so let's jump to Act 3, a, A City Reborn. Right, act one is this amazing moment in which fire breaks out in the church, in which the miraculous happens, in which everyone is, is just overwhelmingly aware that God is God, that he is more than able. But how do we go from that to a city reborn, right? If you're extra sharp, you might know where this is going because I started today by reading the end of the story. It's a tricky trick, Right. But as we read in, in 1 Kings chapter 18 41, Elijah says to Ahab, Go and eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. Right now, we're aware that the nation is in the middle of a horrible drought. King Ahab is, is desperate and he's just seen fire fall from heaven. So he's like, Look, you know, I, I got nothing else going. My prophets of Baal obviously suck. So if anyone's gonna fix this situation that we're in, maybe it's Elijah and his magical God who makes fire fall from heaven, right? Like maybe that's what's going on. So he takes Elijah at his word and he leaves. And Elijah climbs Mount Carmel and he begins to pray for rain. And three years into a drought, there is a massive downpour. Celebrations start to break out in the streets. New life starts to spring up in a dead place. This is a biblical picture of revival. This is the climactic moment in Elijah's story. Not just Elijah looking good in front of a bunch of other prophets, but God touching the lives of the city in which Elijah lives. Restoration touching down in a nation that it's not just for him and for his comfort and for his convenience, but that God's real life and love flows in a very real, tangible practice Practical way to the lives of the people in Elijah's life. A city is reborn, not, not just a church on fire, but that fire going out from the church and an entire city being transformed. See, what I want to speak to today, you like, John, you're already halfway through. What I want to finish speaking to today is that it starts with fire in the church and it ends with revival in the city, act one and act three. But how does one lead to the other? And what can we learn from it? As James says, Elijah prayed fervently, pray like this. What is this type of prayer that changes things that James is talking about? See, in the middle, act number two, is a mountain of prayer. See, Elijah sends the king to prepare for the rain, and then what does Elijah do? We read in in verse 42, Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but that's an odd posture for prayer. See, frequently in the Bible, we encounter people praying face down. We we encounter people lying prostrate in prayer. Sometimes we see people raising their hands in prayer. Occasionally people even kneel in prayer, but Elijah bends to the ground, puts his face between his knees. I debated showing you this, but for the sake of my own dignity, I'm I'm not gonna do it. I'm just gonna talk you through. You'll get it in a minute, right? See, here's a tip for for reading the Bible. Whenever you come across a detail that seems oddly specific, it's, it's a hint for you to pay close attention. Because the Bible is written more like a narrative, more like someone running behind someone as things are happening, which is often actually quite literally what was happening, right? Like, Jesus, you're going over there. I'm coming. I'm just writing some things down, right? As things were happening on the fly, just trying to keep up with life as it was unfolding, more like that than it was a novelist writing pretty imagery, Right? They weren't sitting in a corner thinking, oh, how can I, in flowery language, describe exactly what happened here? And if that was the way that things were being described, in some books of the Bible are poetry and that's there, but in these narrative accounts, it's much more straightforward because then these accounts were being sent around the early church and anything that was kind of superfluous got dropped, Like, oh, we just don't have space. Like, how do we cram everything into here? And so when we read a detail, like he bent to the ground, put his face between his knees, that should get our attention. Like, why is the position that Elijah took being drawn attention to? See, we're being told something important here. Scholars point out that to pray for the city, Elijah intentionally gets himself into the posture of a woman in labor. Some of you are like, ah, I get it now. Yeah, no, I've got the... I've got the position, thanks, don't think I wanted the position in my mind in church in this moment, but it's now there, so thank you for that, Jono, you're welcome. Right, a woman ready to, to labor, ready to bring a child in the world, ready to, to push, see, it's, it's graphic, I know, but this event and this prayer, it's, it's this moment that James refers to as powerful and effective. And it's this prayer that throughout church history has been referred to as contending prayer or to travail in prayer or long-suffering prayer or righteous prayer or or fervent prayer. This type of prayer where where it involves something not just of our our mind, not just of our spirit, but it even almost seems to land in our body in this way of God, I I am birthing something into the world. God, there is something that is not as it should be and I feel like there's something that I wanna bring into the world in, in partnership with you that, that there's a weight to it. See, I've, I've never given birth myself, shockingly, but I've been present for a, a couple, just two, be weird if I was present for for many more than that, right, unless there was an interesting story about, like, helping someone on the side of the road, which is not. Uh, I'd love to make one up for you, but that would be lying, and uh, I generally try and not do that from the pulpit. The lightning thing we discussed before, I'm just not sure when God stopped the lightning, so for my safety and yours, we're like, no, well, let's not lie from the pulpit, right? So I've been present for births, and again, I wasn't doing it myself, but I just want to say it didn't look especially comfortable, like, I mean, I wasn't very comfortable in the moment, right? Like, uh, you know, I had to like rub backs and say nice things and like it was, you know, and, and then for the other people involved, it seemed even more uncomfortable, which, uh, but it brought about something good. It brought about something Beautiful. See, Elijah, in in intentionally assuming this position, is trying to draw our mind to this idea that there is something to be birthed into the world, something good to be brought into the world that might take a bit of of suffering prayer, that might take a bit of, of getting. See, whatever we call it, there is a type of prayer that brings about life, There is a type of prayer that brings about revival, a way of praying. See, as as Moody said, every great move of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. As Tyler Staden says, God doesn't dream of the church on fire. God dreams of the city reborn, and between the two is a mountain of prayer. To to pivot, I I could put it this way. I I never met my grandfather. My mom's dad passed away when when she was 15, Uh, but he was a minister. It was a Methodist minister and, and often in my life, in fact, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to come from a, a line of Christians on, on both sides. I'm third generation in ministry in my family line. And, and, and sometimes just as I'm going about life, I'm aware of the fact that I am walking in the prayers of those who I've never met that I'm walking in the prayers that my grandfather, that, that my grandfather's grandfather, that they prayed for me over my family line, that we would be a people who would partner with God and doing what he is doing. And sometimes I just feel like, oh man, I feel like there is a grace here that's got nothing to do with me and everything to do with you, God, and what other people have prayed before. And, and I don't say that to you know, make you feel stink if you're here and you're like, oh, cool, Jono. I'm first-generation Christian, so I guess it just sucks to be me, right? It's not what I'm saying. But I, I wanna sow the idea... Who could be walking in our prayers? Who could it be that, that we pray for, that we pray, God, would you be present in their life? God, would you move in their life? How could we pray for our children, for our children's children, for our neighbors, for our, our children's friends, for, for our friends and family, for our brothers and sisters, even for our parents, that God would move in their life, that they could walk in our prayers What what mountain of prayer could we be climbing? What vision for revival could we get in our time for life to spring forth? See, I I say this because in its very nature, this type of prayer, where we call things that are not as they should be, where we say, "God, this is broken." but we speak life. God, this is not the way that things should be, but we declare that you are a good God and that you are setting it right. When we come into agreement with the way in which God is establishing his kingdom here on earth, this type of prayer is contending, it's not easy. In fact, it is often slow and unglamorous. See, let's, let's look back at Elijah's story. He's on the mountain, he's laboring in prayer and he tells his servant, go and look towards the sea." His servant goes and looks and he sees nothing. Seven times Elijah sends him back until the seventh time the servant says, a cloud as small as a man's fist is rising from the sea. See, I don't know if you notice this. Elijah prayed for fire once. He prayed for rain seven times. See, sometimes prayer is slow. Sometimes it's that friend that you've really got a sense that, that God might be pursuing, and, and you have that one conversation where they seem really kind of open, and so you get excited and you start praying and, and nothing. And, but you're praying and nothing, and so you keep praying and nothing, and then you're 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 praying and, and, you're praying and, and, you're praying and something. Something small, but it's, but it's something. See, I think plenty of people, plenty of us have been inspired by something like Moody's list of 100, but I think far fewer people are still praying when the inspiration has worn off. Could could it be that if we want the type of legacy that that Moody sees, that, that Elijah sees, that we need to be willing to persistently partner with God? See, I'm not saying that God's waiting for us to store up enough prayer credits that he's like, oh, if you ask a seventh time, I'll do it, or anything like that, but I am saying that in reality, my experience and the experience of church history is that often prayer is slow, and we don't know why, and I'm gonna ask God that one day, and I'm sure he's gonna have a great answer, and be like, oh, that all makes sense now. It really didn't at the time, but sometimes prayer is slow, and it's not always glamorous or spectacular. See, calling fire down from heaven, that one Elijah public spectacle. But praying for the city to be transformed, that was a secret hidden labor. It was unseen and unglamorous. And it is the unseen laboring, the persistent prayer on the mountain, not the public spectacle of fire that we are told to imitate in Elijah's life. James doesn't say, pray like Elijah. You know, one time he was standing in front of a bunch of people and he asked for fire and fire came. For some reason, maybe because he knows that this is the way that our lives work, uh, James says, pray like Elijah. He had to pray for a long time. He had to wait on God and it was hard. You know, there's this one moment in the Gospels where the disciples, they seem really interested in reenacting the fire. In in Luke 9, Jesus isn't welcomed into a village, and and the disciples, James and John, they see this, and their response is, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Which, I mean, you know, points for passion, but kind of misplaced. And so Jesus turns to them, and he rebukes them, and then his, his disciples went on to another village. It's like the shortest nope in the Bible. Just like, nope, that's not what we're doing, and he moves on. You see, James and John, they wanted Elijah's spectacle, but Jesus wanted Elijah's prayer. And if I'm honest with myself, I tend to have much more of an appetite for spectacle than I do persistence. See, I'm I'm almost done as the band comes to join me. I want to suggest what if, as we put this quote up on the screen one more time, what if every great move of God can be traced to a kneeling figure? What if we don't wanna just see God move in a moment, but we wanna see God move in generations, in cultures, in cities, in nations? And and what if that starts with a a church on fire? Can I say, even as the the band joins me, come on, can we have a a, a respect and an honor for what we have here? I wanna say, I believe that there is a fire in this church. I think that the altar is is being rebuilt, that there is a passion for worship, that there is an adoration of God's presence, that there is a God we just want to meet with you, and we just want to pour out our love towards you in sung prayer. We just want to fix our attention towards you. I want to say, I feel like there is a fire starting. I feel like there is a fire growing in our church. We're not where we want to be, but, but there is something to be breathed on here. As we bring our intentionality, as we just bring God, I just wanna be in your presence. I just wanna wanna put all of my my things to the side for a moment and just remind myself that you are God and you love me and I love you. And I say that to point out that throughout history we see a, a pattern that the church catches fire, that the altar is rebuilt, that there is a passion for worship, and one of two things can happen that can be contained, it can be comfortable. It can be, oh man, we went to church on Sunday and it was just a really nice time and I just felt encouraged and built up and, and they finally fixed the coffee machine, not this Sunday, sorry, but hopefully next Sunday. Uh, and, and I had a great cup of coffee and some great chats and you know, it was just really got me fired up for the week. And that's not a bad thing. We pray as a bare minimum that happens. But much more than that, what we see sometimes in church history is, is not that the fire stays comfortable and contained in the church, but that the fire starts to break out that the fire turns from fire in the church to a city reborn, that that what God is doing in our midst does not stay in our midst, but that we become a people who continue to recognize the face of Jesus and our friends and our family and our neighbors, being the hands and feet of Jesus, loving the people, being the answers to the prayers that we can answer and partnering with God and all of the prayers that we can't. And often the link between the two, between a comfortable fire becoming something that reaches a city, a nation, a people that impacts a culture. The link between the two is prayer. People choosing to, to labor, to travail, to, to climb a mountain of prayer. In the words of, of J. Edwin Orr, whenever God is ready to do something new with his people, he always sets them to praying. To land this practically, I'm done. In a moment, I'm gonna invite us to respond, but thinking, what can I do with this? Like, cool, Jonah, we've been talking for a while. Prayer is good, got it. Prayer is something that we intentionally do, not just when we feel like it, but an intentional practice. And there are things that can help us do that, got it. Prayer is something that can impact our world, that can change things for the better, got it. But what do I do? I wanna say tomorrow night, it's the first Monday of the month. The first Monday and the third Monday of the month, we gather at the church offices to pray. Come on, I'm sure you've got reasons not to. I'm sure there are things that you could say, yeah, but I could not be there because of this, that's fine. But what if there was more of a reason to be there? to say, God, I need you to move in my life. I need you to move in my city. God, I am making the decision. I will not be a comfortable fireplace sort of Christian. I wanna be a person who sees you move in my life. And God, I cannot make you move. I cannot make you do anything. All I can do is present my availability. And so God, I am going to intentionally climb a mountain in prayer. I'm gonna put myself in an inconvenient, uncomfortable, maybe even slightly scary space and say, God, I'm gonna create availability to ask you to move. as I create availability, God, would you do what I cannot do? Even if it only just starts in me, even if all that happens is something is born in me. And so I want to invite you, what would it look like for you to take a step towards prayer in your life? Maybe it looks like showing up at the church offices tomorrow, 7.30, 334 Manchester Street, to prioritize prayer. But, But what would it look like not just to turn up to the church offices once? What would it look like to continue to pray? What would it look like to share with others in your community, and e-groups are a great place for this, but to share with others what you are believing God is going to do. You know, in our e-group, we've seen miracles in the last month, and there are things that we're still praying for, but I wanna encourage you that God is moving in us and as a people. And, and, and maybe it's asking God to, to bring to mind someone who is close to you but far from Him, and like Moody, simply writing a list, a list of one name, someone that you are bringing before God and saying, God, would you, would you meet this person in your life? God, would you do something in my life? What would it look like for you to carry the name of that person? To pray for them. To pray for them specifically enough that you'll know if God answers your prayer and regularly enough that endurance and labor are required. And along the way, you might need to ask God for a renewed faith that he's actually listening or a a renewed compassion for the individuals you're praying for. But but as you ask for faith, hope, and love to be your motivation as you go, as you ask for new life to be the result of this laboring in prayer, uh, embracing that it might be tomorrow or it might be much, much longer, but that you'll pray as long as it takes. What would it look like for us to be a people who embrace the prayer of Elijah who climb the mountain and say, God, I'm staying up here as long as it takes. God, I'm believing that you are a God who is able. And so I'll ask until you move. If nothing else, the asking will do something in me. Church, as you stand to your feet. The last thing I wanna direct our attention towards today, and I know today is some stuff to mull over, some stuff to think through, but is maybe for you, the first step is rebuilding the altar in your life. Before you can pray to God to move in the ways that only God can move, it's actually restoring that that value of prayer and worship. It's asking God, God, actually, I need some fire in my life. I need you to fall afresh in my life. I need your Holy Spirit in me. I need you to, to move in ways that I cannot understand. With the first prayer that you pray, be one of God, would you move in me? God, would your fire fall in my life? If that's you, can I encourage you like Elijah to to rebuild the altar, to come to God in a position of worship? Come on, his head's bowed, his eyes are closed. In a moment, the band's gonna lead us in in a time of response. Before they do, God, I thank you for every need present in this room. God, I thank you that needs are simply opportunities. God, that we are a people who who you have equipped to see things that are not as they should be so that we can be a part of the solution. God, that you have given us the dignity of causality, that we get to partner with you in seeing the things that are broken be made right. God, I acknowledge that that can be hard, that there is hurt tied up in that, that unanswered prayer is is something of a weight in some of our lives. God, I pray today would there be a fresh faith to say, I'm just gonna try again. It might be a long time, I might never see it happen in the way that I want to see it happen, but I'm going to bring it to God in prayer because you are a God who can be trusted. You are a God who is more than able. If every great move of God can be traced to a kneeling figure, God, I want to kneel in prayer that your will would be done on earth in Otoitai in Christchurch is in heaven that we would be a people just people like Elijah, but people who pray, who see you move in miraculous ways. Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.